Oh, like, because when I shot, I expected to make it. So, like, I don't shoot kind of this. You are Locked On Raptors, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to episode number 949 of Locked On Raptors for Wednesday, May the 19th. I'm your host, Sean Woodley of RaptorsHQ.com. You can find me on Twitter as always, at WoodleySean. You can find the show at Locked On Raptors, uh, where, of course, you can find links to every episode. Give us a follow over there. And also, we got all of the teams you love covered on the Lockdown Podcast Network, in addition to the Toronto Raptors, of course. If there is a team you like, we have a podcast for you. If you are a fan of a baseball, basketball, football, uh, what are these other sport? Basketball, football, baseball, hockey. That's the other one. There we go. I remembered all the sports. Hell yeah. Uh, we have you covered off with uh, all those local podcasts, and you should go and support them. Today's show is brought to you by Locker Room. We're changing the way we talk about sports. Download the app on iOS and Android and join me this week alongside Vivek Jacob and Katie Heindel. Uh, typically, we've been doing these things on Friday, so let's say Friday 2 o'clock. We haven't yet uh, ironed out a time, but that is what we'll shoot for this week so stay tuned for that and uh be sure to join us there on locker room who are again changing the way we talk about sports okay on today's show it's a bit of a special episode over the weekend the news dropped that chris bosh is going to be part of the 2021 hall of fame induction class alongside uh paul pierce ben wallace Chris Webber, Yolanda Griffith, uh, Bill Russell as a coach. Uh, it's a pretty interesting class. It's obviously not the uh, star-studded, uh, oh, here are three of the 15 best players of all time class that we just saw over the weekend, but still a deserving class and an overdue class in a lot of ways. And Chris Bosh is part of it, which is very exciting. Of course, Chris Bosh played for your Toronto Raptors for seven of his 13 NBA years. And... We did a podcast today with uh, David Ramil of Locked On Heat, who, of course, he spent the last six seasons of, the, of his career playing for Miami. Uh, we did a little crossover episode just to kind of appreciate Chris Bosch and dive into, you know, his origins. What were Dave's impressions of Bosch when he was in Toronto? Um, what were my impressions of Bosch in Toronto? We move on to sort of his Miami days. And this is going to be a two-part episode where tomorrow we dive more into the sort of legacy of Bosch, sort of how he... Um, you know, what his career might have looked like had his career not been cut short by the blood clot issue, uh, you know, the playoff series with the Raptors that never happened back in 2016, where the Heat and Raptors play in the second round, and just a couple months prior, Bosch's career comes to an end. We didn't realize it was the end of the time, which is a bummer, uh, but we dove into that. We dove into, you know, the, the many, many good years of basketball Chris Bosch clearly had left how his skills would have aged, I think probably pretty damn well. Uh, he was just 31 when his career came to an end, which is uh, truly insane. I, I, I really am shocked by that when uh, I was kind of going through this and you hear my shock hit me live on air. So I hope you enjoy this episode today and tomorrow. Uh, before I get into the chat with Dave, I just wanted to offer a thought on Bosch, you know, myself and sort of reflect a little bit and also kind of infuse it into today's team and a certain Pascal Siakam. So Chris Bosch, I think, 
you know, he goes down right now. I think he's like the fifth best Raptor of all time. He's actually second all time in like win shares. He, you know, right behind Kyle Lowry. He was really, really freaking good. And what he averaged like 22 and nine for basically his entire prime with the Raptors. He had the 24 and 11 season in his final year. You know, he kind of flirted with borderline MVP discussion, kind of down ballot stuff a couple times as well. He was excellent, and I think that kind of got lost a little bit because the Raptors weren't particularly good. They had two playoff runs during his time with the team, one of which was a six-game loss to the Nets, where Vince Carter kind of stole all the headlines, and the second one was an embarrassing five-game loss, I believe in a 2-7 to the Orlando Magic, might have been a 1-8. Either way, it wasn't exactly an inspiring Raptors team built around Chris Bosh, and they got punked by Dwight Howard and Jameer Nelson and Richard Lewis, and of course, Hito Turgaloo, and that was basically all she wrote in terms of Raptors' quote-unquote success during the Bosch era. I think there's a sort of parallel between present-day Pascal Siakam and Chris Bosch, and I would hope that we could kind of learn from the past with Chris Bosch and what happened with him and the way he kind of went unappreciated despite all the great things he did in Toronto. And I think there is a similar sort of through line with Pascal Siakam's post-title career, his sort of number one option phase of his career. You know, Pascal gets derided a lot. There's a lot of criticism. Some of it's fair and some of it's not. You know, Chris Bosh got the same thing. You know, there was all the, oh, you can't build a title team around this guy. They kind of missed the fact that all the supporting cast, minus Jose Calderon, TJ Ford, and a couple Euro guys who they brought in, was kind of embarrassing. And they never really had any centers. They never really had much depth. It was always kind of a, a ramshackle organization during Bosch's run. So not the, quite the same as Siakam, but... You know, Bosch did sort of suffer from that. Well, is he really a number one option? And no, he wasn't. That was pretty clear. He goes to Miami. He slots in perfectly as a third option on a championship team. This kind of applies to Siakam because I fear there's a similar sort of thing that's going to happen with him where maybe he goes unappreciated during his time in Toronto because he's not a clear number one option and everybody's lusting for that number one option to kind of carry you to, to glory. Not everybody can do that. In fact, very few people can do that. Maybe seven players in the NBA can actually do that. And so to heap those kind of expectations on guys who are just below that tier, it's pretty unfair. And you're kind of setting yourself up for disappointment and setting yourself up to kind of miss the moment when it's right in front of you. And I think that kind of happened with Bosch a little bit. There was so much focus on sort of how unimpressive the team was and how Bosch himself couldn't carry the team to great success, you know, because of the supporting cast, because he wasn't LeBron James or Dwayne Wade or any other number of superstars in the league at the time. Just because he wasn't a super duper star doesn't mean he wasn't a freaking star. He was incredible. And had the Raptors built the team a little more capably around him with like an Andre Iguodala or not driving Vince Carter out of town or whatever it might have been, you're probably looking at a team that has a lot more success and maybe goes on to some pretty deep runs. This thing with Pascal Siakam, like, he's currently, I think, unappreciated. I think people who are smart and kind of get it do appreciate him, but I still think you hear the refrain, you know, he's not a max player. He's he's not worth the money that they're paying him, which is just wrong. And I can really envision a situation where, for the next three years, Pascal Siakam goes a little bit unappreciated by certain sections of the fan base, you know, because he's not a clear number one option, because he can't carry you to, you know, a 55-win season every year on his own and drag you to the second or third round or even a finals. And I feel like we'll see in four or five years Pascal Siakam move on to some other team, 
and be like a perfect second or third option and win titles again and kind of do the thing all over again that he did in his breakout season where he was a great third option. And, you know, it's just that's kind of how these things go. He Not everybody can carry a team to a championship on his own. And I think it's worth kind of remembering that, you know, Chris Bosh was unappreciated because of that sort of perceived limitation. And I would hope that you would learn from that and apply it to Pascal Siakam and appreciate that, yeah, you can be an excellent second option on a team just because you don't have the first option in place doesn't mean you jettison the second option who you already have. Doesn't mean you, you know, you you sort of miss the appreciation of that player. And I would just, you know, this is sort of a, maybe a straw man. I don't think so. There's lots of people who don't appreciate Pascal Siakam in there and who think he's overpaid and that he's not worth it, that he spins too much or whatever it might be. I don't think I'm crazy thinking this is a, a, a line of thought within the own Raptors fan base. This isn't just American people, you know, looking up and saying, oh, look at the spinning guy up there. What a, what a clown. This it very much exists in Raptors fan base. Look at the Raptors Instagram comments whenever a Pascal Siakam clip get, clip gets posted. You know, it absolutely exists, and I would hope that you'd learn from Chris Bosh, who I still think is not properly appreciated for what he did for the Raptors and for what his career was. Yes, there was a bit of a messy breakup where you know he quote unquote dogged it for the last part of the season and sat out to preserve himself for free agency. As we dig into with Dave Ramil in just a second here. I think that's an insane, ridiculous line of thinking, considering he played his contract out and he never got any help. And I don't blame him for preserving himself after seven years of the team, never really assembling anything worth anything around him, except for in the 2006-7 season where they kind of got lucky in a bad Eastern Conference and, of course, lost in the first round anyway. So moral of the story, appreciate Chris Bosh and appreciate Pascal Siakam. Appreciate the good players when you have them on your team because they don't last forever and sometimes you end up being the 2010-11 Raptors after losing Chris Bosh and realizing, oh my god, it'd be so much better if this guy was still here. With that, let's uh, turn to the conversation with myself and David Ramil of Locked on Heat. It was a really fun chat. We start off again with Bosch's Toronto time, dig into his move to Miami and sort of his positional change and how things evolved with him in terms of the skill set, what type of player he became, uh, and just how informative he was in terms of how we play basketball today. He's a pretty influential player, and it's pretty cool that he, uh, you know, got his start in Toronto. So, Hope you enjoy it, and uh, part two will come tomorrow where we kind of dig more into the what-ifs and the legacy, and of course, uh, I, I also run David through a game of uh, that random Raptors slash Heat game, uh, because it's fun, and so uh, that's coming up in part two tomorrow. Enjoy today's episode. Really appreciate everybody for tuning in. Before we get into that, let me tell you about our friends over at Locker Room, of course. Uh, they are the first social audio platform made for sports fans. The app is free to download, and once you're in, you can talk with me, other fans, athletes, and insiders in real time about your favorite team or sport. I'll be hosting rooms on Locker Room once a week, of course, uh, usually on Fridays. We do your mailbags, take your questions, and you can finally join in the conversation that you listen around to this podcast every single day. Locker Room is perfect for, for uh, you know, joining conversations about the league you love. You will have a chance to chat with me and might even have a chance to be featured on the Locked On Raptors podcast through our Locker Room chats, as sometimes I'll turn those into episodes. Be sure to join me and Vivek and Katie this week on Friday, probably around 2 o'clock. We have to iron out the time, but let's just pencil in 2 o'clock into your calendar. Go to download the free Locker Room app now, currently available on all iOS devices. Be sure to create a profile, link your Twitter, and join the group for the league that you like the most. So join the NBA group, in this case, 
Follow me at Sean Woodley. Be notified when my rooms go live. And you know you don't want to miss it. And we'll be, again, on Friday doing our room this week around 2 o'clock. Can't wait to hear everyone's thoughts on the Raptors. See you there. Locker room changing the way we talk about sports. All right, now let's get to it. Uh, Chris Bosh Appreciation Day with myself, David Ramil of Locked on Heat. Enjoy. Jose finds Bosh. Bosh is going to take a three. Got it! CB4 delivers a three. Are you kidding me? Raptors by one. All right, it's Sean Woodley here from Locked On Raptors, as well as David Ramil of Locked On Heat, here for a little crossover action to talk about newly minted, or I guess soon to be minted in 2021, National Basketball Hall of Fame. I guess it's not the, Na- it's just the Basketball Hall of Fame, the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame, whatever the hell the name of the, the Hall of Fame is. Chris Bosch is going into it, and of course, Chris Bosch spent his 13-year NBA career with the Miami Heat and the Toronto Raptors. And so uh, figured a little Heat-Raptors crossover action was due. Dave Ramil, how's it going, man? How are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, you know, still in the midst of trying to cover this terrible, wonderful season and seeing what <laughs> happens with Miami. But at least a, a bit of good news, because I wasn't, I honestly was not quite sure that Chris would be able to get into the Hall of Fame. And it was an interesting mm-hmm. debate. Now, I, I know how I felt about the subject, and I'm sure that you will get into it much more throughout the show. But it was just, I thought they were going to question his level of success at, in various stops and, and different things that he's done throughout his career. But it, it's, it's good to see him. Cause I think he is absolutely deserving and it kind of changes the conversation about what kind of criteria they're using to elect people into the hall of fame. Yeah. I think it was Tom Ziller over the weekend. And, and I, excuse me if I'm mentioning the wrong person here, but I think it was Tom Ziller who kind of pointed out that it's a good thing that the Basketball Hall of Fame is inclusive and is not exactly like turning its nose up at very, very good players. And, you know, it's happy to welcome in players whose names are absolutely part of the story of basketball, even if they aren't like the god tier best player on a championship team level players. And Chris Bosch obviously falls into that. He was the third best player on a championship team. He was the best player on, you know, some pretty okay Raptors teams and some pretty bad ones as well that, I don't know, (laughs) varying degrees of his fault. Not really his fault at all, actually, but, and we'll get to that. But it is nice that the Basketball Hall of Fame, I think, is willing to, like, honor its history as opposed to baseball, where it's like, yeah, that guy was really great. He had, like, 490 home runs, but uh, he didn't have 10 more, but he's not in. Sorry, Carlel Stelgado, you're not getting in the uh, another Toronto-Miami guy. Um, you know, you're not getting in the Hall of Fame. Sorry, dude. It, like, it's just... It's so precious and becomes such a, like a squawking match with every Hall of Fame debate every year, and I'm glad that's not really the case in basketball. It seems to be becoming even more so that way. Uh, you know, now that we got Chris Webber and Ben Wallace and guys like that getting in the league, guys who would never be considered, you know, even like one of the ten best players alive at a given time. That's totally fine. You can't tell the history of basketball without those guys. And so, hell yeah, put them in. And I mean, I'm sure this will also apply to like Kyle Lowry down the line. You know, I'm fully uh, Kyle Lowry's a Hall of Famer, and stop it. You can't tell the story of 2010's basketball without him. But, um, you know, th- th- that's going to be for another time. We're talking about Chris Bosh today. So, David, I want to start with just sort of the Raptors era, I suppose. And to flip it to you first, you know, obviously Chris Bosh comes to Miami after seven years in Toronto. 
you, I'm sure, saw Chris Bosh from sort of a distance. You know, this is maybe even before like League Pass really kicked in, so I'm not even sure how much you got to see him. What were your impressions of Chris Bosh as a player before he got to Miami? And were you like expecting to get like this superstar level player? Like, did you have preconceived notions because he was in Toronto and the Raptors were not exactly amazing? Uh, what was your early impression of Chris Bosh pre Miami days? Well, I think like a lot of people watching basketball at that point in time and obviously not covering the league in any way, shape or form at that point in time, my feeling was that there was no way of categorizing Chris that seemed appropriate. Like he didn't feel like a center. He didn't feel like a four. He was somewhere in between. And I still I think I still have a lot of those not necessarily preconceived notions, but just those those kind of set in stone ideas of what a center should be even at that point early on in in Chris's career where I was still thinking oh it's a guy who plays with the back to the basket I mean in Miami think about the first three or four years of Chris's career we had Shaquille O'Neal here you know then we had Alonzo Mourning before that and even during alongside Shaquille O'Neal so there was always a more traditional center playing in Miami for a long time that just seemed like the kind of teams that Pat Riley always liked to build with Alonzo and then Patrick Ewing in New York and of course Kareem in, in Los Angeles so it just felt like that was the way that a center should be and so I I kind of fit into that same mode of just not knowing exactly how to register Chris's game like obviously he was getting the kind of attention and individual accolades that felt deserving like I never questioned the all-star selections so much maybe because I just didn't care as much as I did uh, or would wind up caring later on once I started covering the game but for Chris it seemed like well he was a potent scorer and then you hear some of the criticism about him being, you know, somewhat soft because he takes 18 foot jumpers or 15 footers and he doesn't exactly play the way a center does. And so I'm kind of concerned when I hear that he's coming to Miami, although clearly he's recognized as one of the top 20 players in the game, even in 2010. And I think his impact only grew from that point. So I, I did have some not necessarily issue, but I, I think I just didn't know how to really accept what Chris was as a player until I got a chance to see him much more closely in Miami. That's interesting because, you know, I feel like Raptors fans kind of didn't really appreciate what Chris Bosch was during his time either. And even afterwards, you know, I was kind of going back today and like watching old clips and I watched the his return to Toronto with the Heat and he gets booed. And yeah. I think that's like a perfect sort of encapsulation of just like the totally out of whack narrative of Chris Bosch in Toronto. I mean, this is a guy who's drafted in 03 into a brewing shitstorm frankly with Vince Carter already kind of on the outs you know they just I believe that year gone on a run in the final part of the season with Vince injured and they win like 14 of 15 to close the season without him get into the playoffs give the Pistons a run for five games uh, and that's kind of the beginning of the oh maybe they only actually need Vince thing and of course you know within the next couple years you have the him not dunking anymore him getting traded to the Nets for nothing and Chris Bosh is just there for that and then if you look at just the team building over the course of the time Bosch was in Toronto, yeah, there were a couple nice years where Brian Colangelo hit on like Jose Calderon and Jorge Garbajosa and Anthony Parker and all these Euro guys who came over. But other than those like three moves, all the other team building moves are garbage and set Chris Bosch up to fail. Like you look at the draft history of the Raptors from 2004 on, like they draft Bosch in 03 with the fourth overall pick. And then the next year, they take Rafael Arujo at eight when Andre Iguodala is sitting right there. The following year, they take Charlie Villanueva at seven, which, hey, he was a good rookie for them. They traded for TJ Ford, not so bad. But then Joey Graham at 16 when Danny Granger is sitting right there. 
And then you take Bargnani with the first overall pick in 2006. They don't have a pick in 07 because I believe they traded it away for TJ Ford, if I'm not mistaken, Um, in addition to Charlie Villanueva. And then, and I could be wrong on who they traded that first round pick, but they traded that first round pick away. Then they trade Roy Hibbert in the draft for Jermaine O'Neal. That all goes to crap very quickly. And then the last pick they make before Bosch leaves is DeMar DeRozan, who in his rookie season was only going to do so much. And so, you know, all of that, the team building, the moves that just didn't work out, paying Jason Capono a ton of money, like it's totally unsurprising that things didn't go the way that they should have. And I think that whole soft brand on him was kind of amplified by the fact that in his final season, he gets injured, I think, in like game 68 or something like that and doesn't come back. He kind of sits it out. The Raptors end up missing the playoffs by like a game or two. There's this whole sort of chorus of, oh, he should probably, he could have maybe come back and played, but maybe he's preserving himself for free agency or whatever. And it's like, okay, yeah, maybe he was doing some self-preservation. Why wouldn't he on a team that was at best a 500 team? And also, if you were worried about that being the case, Brian Colangelo had the opportunity to trade him before his final season when they couldn't sign him to an extension and chose not to because he's Brian Colangelo and he's bad at his job. And so this whole, like, Chris Bosh quit on the Raptors, Chris Bosh is this, like, soft player is just kind of insane he was the only shining light in addition to a couple other flashes from like jose calderon and tj ford during that run and like there was only so much he could do and and i just i'll never begrudge him for leaving and the more sort of distance you get and the more you kind of understand just how badly managed that era of the raptors was having seen now eight years of good management it's like yeah he would have been a fool to stay honestly and that's a, you know, the, like the whole narrative around him is silly. The fact that he got booed when he came back, you know, yes, I get it. The Heatles were booed everywhere that year, but, you know, Chris Bosch was the best player on the team for seven years or, you know, five of his seven years, six of his seven years even. And for him to kind of get a raw deal, and I think now is sort of misremembered in Raptors history as not one of the greats. It, it's, it's pretty unfortunate, but I'm hoping like the next year of sort of retrospectives looking back will kind of change things. Uh, mm-hmm. And by the time the Hall of Fame comes around next year, you know, it's it's back to full appreciation. But it's certainly, you know, it, it's not always been smooth with Raptors fans and Chris Bosh, which is unfortunate because Chris Bosh did nothing but score a ton of points, average 23 and 10 for five, six years, and drag some very, very sad sack uh, supporting casts to, you know, in, so, in a couple of cases, mod- modest success or, you know, something bordering on it. So. Right. All right, we're going to finish up the chat with David Ramil and dive into the Miami Heat days of Chris Bosh a little bit more in just a second here. But first, I want to tell you about our friends over at Built Bar making the best tasting protein bars you can find. Look, I spent the last two months doing very little in terms of physical activity. I just this week started biking once again. It's wonderful. It's amazing how exercise makes you feel good and make your brain not want to uh, like wrap you in sadness and, ups- and upsetting feelings. It's great. And uh, a great thing that I like to have before I go for a workout is a built bar because it's light. It doesn't drag me down. It doesn't fill my stomach too much, but it gives me the protein I need to get through a workout. They have nine wonderful flavors. Can't recommend them enough. And also, they have limited edition flavors that pop up once in a while, too. I think my favorite they have right now is mint brownie. It's really, really freaking good. The cherry one's really good, too. Uh, Highly recommend you get a mixed box where you can get two of each flavor, and then you can decide for yourself which one you want to buy a full box of. Most flavors have 17 grams of protein, only 130 calories, just 4 grams of sugar, and 4 grams of net carbs. 
I love Built Bars. That's like the, you know, I, I, we have products all the time on the podcast. I don't say that I enjoy them or use them or I like stand by them all the time. Absolutely, this is one that I stand by for sure. Go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo code LOCKED15 and get 15% off your first order. Use the promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. Today's show is also brought to you by our friends over at BetOnline.ag, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports action. Baseball is in full swing, and you can track all the action at BetOnline.ag. Your Toronto Blue Jays are really good. They have won a million games in the last month or so. They're like the best team in baseball over the last three months or three weeks or whatever. I don't know, but they're really, really good, and they're a lot of fun, and you can bet on them to win their games if you want and make some money because they're winning more than they're losing right now. Get all the latest news odds and info for all your sporting needs including baseball basketball hockey as well as ufc and mma action before the next pitch head over to bet online on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news sign up bonuses and contest information don't sit on the sidelines anymore as this is your chance to get into the game as teams prep for their runs to the playoffs head to the website now and receive a 50 percent welcome bonus on your first deposit when you sign up using the promo code locked on all one word that means if you put in 100 bucks, you get 150 bucks off the top to play with. That is an awesome deal. Over at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. All right, now back to round out the first part of our Chris Bosch appreciation episode with David Ramil of Locked On Heat. Enjoy the rest of the chat. Well, yeah. I, I, you know, a couple of things, you know, stood out there. One, I had no idea, even now as you're talking about it, I just kind of recollecting everything. There is a, a a number of different connections here between the Heat and Raptors, not to mention mm-hmm. Alonzo Morning. I didn't even think about it as I was talking about him. He's probably not very popular in the Toronto area, right? I would imagine. I do an annual ranking of all the Raptors in Raptors history, and Alonzo Morning is always, even though he didn't play a game for the team, he Wouldn't is always playing a game for last. the team. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And look, it, it kind of ties into what you're saying. Like at that time, like Alonzo, I remember not thinking, oh, he's not wrong. I mean, maybe I was somewhat biased because it was Alonzo Morning, but I remember thinking, like, why would a player at that point in time in his respective career, having come back from, you know, debilitating, life threatening kidney injury, ironically enough, and then wind up, you know, having to, he wanted to join a contender. The Nets fell short of that goal, and and why would he want to go to a team like Toronto that at that time was so bad? Like, they, they, in fact, you know, kind of playing exactly what you were saying. Like, they were just not building a team very well. They were not a very good team, and obviously, they traded their very best player, Vince Carter, to the Nets in exchange for well, what would have been Alonzo Mourning. But there's Alonzo, and then you mentioned Jason Capono as well, who probably <laughs> got a big contract based on his success in Miami, playing alongside Shaquille O'Neal. And then you mentioned Jermaine O'Neal, who we traded Sean Marion to Toronto in exchange for O'Neal, right? So there, there's yeah. some interesting connections there during the aughts. Uh, I, I had totally forgotten about all those, uh, st- <laughs> the strange ties between the two <laughs> franchises there. But, you know, it's kind of interesting because we're kind of tying it all back and, and the criteria for the Hall of Fame. Like, you know, it's so interesting to me that he's, he's the one, the biggest criticism I think is, well, his role wasn't big enough in Miami and they won a lot though. Obviously they won championships and he yeah. was a great player here, but then when he was putting up the numbers, it's like, oh, well he wasn't, 
he wasn't responsible for enough team success. And it's like this like kind of lack of context. I, that's why I thought it was going to be held against him when he was enshrined in the Hall of Fame. I didn't think he would get picked at this year or maybe it would take a couple of years for, before he was recognized because it's like it changes that criteria. It's like, well, what do you want? You want him to put up 25 points per game on a team that wins you know, 25 to 30 games per season? Or do you want yeah. him to be the second or third best player on a championship level team? Yeah, and also, like, I, I feel like had the Raptors been put together more competently during that time in Toronto, like, there would have been more team success. He had the year where they went 47-35, and 35 and he was outstanding. His final season with the team, I mean, they finished 40-42 and 42 basically entirely because of him. Like, that's the right. year, like, they go back-to-back years. 08-09, they bring in Jermaine O'Neal, and it goes horribly. As you said, the Sean Marion trade happens, and, like, the back half of that season is a complete joke. And then 2009-10 happens, and they bring in Hito Turkoglu, who is fat and out of shape from day one, and wow. hates it from day one, and is just dragging down the vibe of the team. Like, of course Chris Bosh was not going to drag that team to much success. It was a deadweight roster with a lot of very, very bad players, and like a couple of nice contributors, but, you know, th- there's number one options like you could still have him be the number one option and have like competent players around him they probably would have won you know 48 games a season or something like that it's just the roster construction was so horrible and I also think this other thing happens too and this you know I was kind of guilty of this last year when I was on contract with raptors.com I was writing um this was during the pandemic and so instead of writing like features and stuff with the access I had I had to do like retrospective stuff and I did a bracket of the best individual single game Raptors performances in history. And it was kind of wild how little Chris Bosch appeared in that bracket. I think I picked 32 different games. I think I only had one Bosch game. And it's kind of like he was done in by how consistently awesome he was without being terribly flashy. It's sort of like a LaMarcus Aldridge thing almost, where it's like, oh yeah, that guy's amazing. His numbers are ludicrous. He's kind of like a revolutionary big man the way he's shooting. Obviously, the three-point shooting didn't really come until Miami, but you know, still, stretching it out to 18 feet was not a thing a lot of bigs did. And you know, it, he just did it in such like a calm, cool, unsexy way that it didn't lend itself to a lot of those like insane like 50 point 50 15 rebounds, 5 assist games or anything like that. He just constantly oh, here just another 30 and 12. Oh, another 28 and 14. Oh, another 30 and 15. Like it was just so metronomic almost that it almost kind of it's hard to find those standout moments. And also, I mean, those standout moments would have come had the team not been a nightmare and had, you know, gotten to the playoffs and weren't getting, you know, pasted by the magic in round one. Like those things would have come if the team hadn't sort of let him down around him. Um, But then of course he goes to Miami and that's, I guess where you kind of get to see him every single day. What were your sort of impressions in those early heat years? You know, this is, I'm going to rely on you a lot for this because, you know, because of how poorly the Raptors were run and how the Bosch thing went, I kind of fell out of love with the team and the sport, honestly, for a couple of years. Like, I went to the first post Bosch game in Toronto and it was also against the Cavs and they didn't have LeBron anymore. And it was such a depressing game that I was just like, you know what? I'm good for a couple of years. And it wasn't till like 2013 that I got back in on the team. Um, so I kind of missed the the heights of Chris Bosch in Miami. And it's a shame going back and watching clips today. It was like, oh man, like this was great. And look at how revolutionary he is as like a center just flying around blocking Danny Green in the corner in game six of the finals. Like, what was your experience watching Chris Bosh and seeing him kind of move into the role he kind of occupied on those very good title-winning teams? Well, so so much of it changed, and it went so quickly, like in the short span of the 
big three heatles era i mean it was four seasons right so it doesn't seem like it's much even when you're talking about it now but even when in the context of those seasons like his role changed he was brought in as what many expected to be as a power forward with lebron at the three and then Dwayne at the two and then anybody really at the one or five like they started so many bad players at either the center or point guard position you know that it's it's just it's kind of funny to go back to his names like heat twitter and heat fans in general just look back at all those centers you had eric dampier zedrunas Gaskus, Dexter Pittman, <laughs> Joel Anthony, Canada's own. You better Joel watch Anthony. your ass, call, hey, call I love Joel, Joel Anthony, Anthony bad. <laughs> I, I, I love Joel Anthony. And I'll tell this story now for, for your Canadian fans there because I saw Joel Anthony at a Target. I don't know if you know Target in Canada or mm -hmm, not, but mm -hmm. okay. Well, I saw him at a Target like when he first joined the team. Like this was fresh out of UNLV. He had just been in summer league and he got like a, a contract in in Miami. And of course, he's got to go shopping for, for like housewares, like because he's living <laughs> in an apartment here and, and he's walking around Target. Nobody knows who the guy is. And I'm just like freaking out there with my fiance, now my wife. And we're just kind of looking at Joel Anthony. And I'm like nervous to even go and talk to him because it's Joel freaking <laughs> Anthony and nobody even gives a damn except for me so it's just hilarious but uh yeah so there were a number of not great let's say centers at that point in time and chris was at the four but i remember even during that first season when you're kind of feeling the buzz of the big three and everything else like the miami herald was listing like their individual scores and, and statistics on a nightly basis. Like they had a column in the sports section that listed LeBron's statistics, Dwayne's statistics, and Chris's there because they were so responsible for almost all of Miami's offense. It was they were averaging, I think, like almost 75 to 80 points per game between the three of them <laughs> because they were just dominating everything. And that was what the expectation was. It didn't matter who the one and five were because you had these big three players. And then, of course, in that first season, he's phenomenal. And everybody kind of forgets this when they lose the championship to the Mavericks. But Chris was great in the NBA Finals. Like, they, mm. the Heat lost the Finals because of LeBron James through and through. That he, he just fell apart, didn't know how to handle the pressure in Dallas. I'm not sure if he was comfortable with his role playing kind of a the secondary ball creator or, or your shot creator there on offense to Dwayne. Dwayne took over. Chris was phenomenal. LeBron cost the Heat the, the finals in 2011 for sure. And then the next year, things kind of change. There's that lockout too, right? So the lockout kind of shortens the season. And then in year two of the big three experiment, you know, they bring in Shane Battier and he plays a lot more at the four kind of coming off the bench. Um, you know, he's also a three, four at times because he lets LeBron kind of not have to guard the bigger player to save the wear and tear there. And Chris is kind of somewhere floating there in that role where he kind of comes in and plays a lot at the five, but not necessarily. You still have Joel Anthony or somebody starting alongside of him. Udonis Haslam was getting a lot of minutes too. So it's like the, the front court was very, very weird at that point in time. And then slowly but surely you see Chris's evolution into a floor spacing big. And it's just, he's so good at it. Like, it seems almost seamless. But I remember even during those first, I think it was the 2000, I want to say the 2012 finals run where he has to come back from injury and then he winds up just being really, really good at stretching the floor. Like, you see, you, you always see the 18 foot jumper being so smooth and fluid. And then all of a sudden, he's able to take it from 18 to 23 feet like nothing. And it's just like, well, this is just, this is just the next evolution for him, and he's so good at it. And he becomes a legitimate three-point shooting weapon on a team that really, really needed. And then from that point forward, 
you know, a lot of it is attributed to Eric Spolstra, but of course we see little bits and pieces around the league for many years, even before that, but the, the kind of the positionless basketball that Spo embraces becomes possible because of Chris Bosch, like his mm -hmm. versatility as a, a defender and as a scoring option on offense just allows Spo to use those kind of positionless lineups where you have Chris at the five and you can do things with B Battier or Ray Allen or whomever Richard Lewis was coming in there. He playing a lot of minutes too at that point in time. So, like Chris's versatility to see it on display and to see his evolution within such a short amount of span, a short amount of time, to me, it's like one of the most underrated aspects of his game and why I think he's such a great player, an unheraldly, unheralded great player, because like he was able to change it. And, you, you, you know, players talk about this all the time. You try to incorporate things into your game. You try to add things during the offseason and you rarely see it kind of manifest so quickly but from you know chris's standpoint he came in there as a four left in four years he was a three-point shooting center and, and it's like you start to see this growth happen slowly but surely and it just it's amazing to see uh to, to just think about chris's impact and the way he evolves the way the game evolves because of a player like him yeah, I think it's Kurt Goldsberry who kind of throws around the refrain, you know, we talk about it being small ball these days, but it's not small ball, it's skill ball. And right. it just so happens that in a sport where the basket is 10 feet high, if you're seven feet tall and skilled, that's going to be a lot better than if you're six foot two and skilled, right? And so, you know, if you're looking at guys who affected the way the game is played and sort of informed what it looks like today... You know, I think you start probably with like Kevin Garnett, another Hall of Famer. I think you probably throw Draymond in there as well. And, sure. you know, obviously their guards and stuff like Steph is a kind of different beast. But in terms of like the idea of going small and sort of changing the way your front court is oriented, like Bosch might be third behind those two guys in terms of changing the way things have been done. Like maybe I'm missing somebody else, but and like LeBron playing the four, I guess, is also kind of in there too. And it's all part and parcel with Bosch moving to the five. Right. But, like, that is the prototype now. Like, if you can find a center who can block shots and score and defend like, and, and is able to kind of track out to the perimeter, buddy, you're cooking. That's what you want. That is, like, what Evan Mobley is supposed to be in the draft this year. That's why people are going so crazy for him. And Bosch really is, I think, one of the, the first players to kind of introduce that and again it's another reason why of course he's a hall of famer like he tangibly affected how the game is played for years and possibly like generations beyond and that is pretty damn cool and not exactly a thing a lot of people have a claim to that obviously requires eric spolster to make that move and all that stuff but most of it falls on bosch for becoming adaptable and kind of right. changing the player he was entirely from what he was in toronto where he was not really seen as this great defender again i don't know if that's entirely fair Maybe he was out of position playing the four at his size. And, uh, you know, next to Andrea Bargnani, I'm not sure if you can really expect to be good defensively, right? So there's lots to sort of dig into there. But I think the way he kind of evolved over the course of the last decade is just remarkable and exactly the kind of stuff that Hall of Famers are made of. And that is where we will cut it for today. Part two of the Chris Bosch episode will drop tomorrow with myself and Dave. 
a lot of fun. And uh, just go back and watch some Chris Bosh highlights. You know, not the flashiest as we kind of talk about. Not the, you know, guy's going to put up 50 points and, you know, go 19 of 23 or whatever. But uh, really, really excellent career and some really big games for him and uh, some fun highlights. Also, go back and watch his All-Star video uh, from 2008. Also very fun. Uh, anyway, that's going to do it. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll talk to you again on Thursday with part two of Chris Bosh Appreciation later this week as well. On Friday, we're going to talk defense with Vivek Jacob and uh, Brad Vermont from Too Much Hoops. He's uh, going to be back on the podcast. We're going to dive into where things went wrong for the Raptors defense this year. Look ahead to what the defense could look like next season and a whole bunch of other stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun. That's on Friday. It's around out the week. Till then, have a good one, everybody, and we'll talk to you on Thursday. Bye-bye. <laughs>